Welcome to The Reckoning, a series of talks co-presented by Sydney Festival and the UNSW Centre for Ideas. I'm Anne Mossop, Director of the UNSW Centre for Ideas. The conversation you're about to hear, Australia's Turning Point, features myself, journalists Stan Grant and Peter Harcher, and marine ecologist Emma Johnston. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Australia's Turning Point, a talk in the series The Reckoning, which the UNSW Centre for Ideas and Sydney Festival are co-presenting. I'm Anne Mossop. I'm Director of the Centre for Ideas at UNSW. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm coming to you from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are with us here today. We're here today to have a really big conversation about what's happening in Australia now and where we find ourselves in relation to some of the most significant issues of our time, the pressure on the environment from climate change, our place in the world and our identity. What is the turning point that we're at now and what are we going to do about all of these things, about the ongoing injustices for the First Nations people in Australia as a result of uh, the invasion of Australia and the ongoing legacy of that for First Nations people and for us all. So we're going to be talking about these key questions, the environmental pressures on Australia, their acceleration, what's happening in the world, the dramatic changes, and whether we can come to terms with the promise and potential of a process like the Uluru Statement from the Heart. We have three fantastic guests with us today to talk about this, Stan Grant, Peter Harcher and Emma Johnston, all of whom have recently completed major pieces of work on some of these questions. Let me introduce our speakers. Stan Grant is a Wiradjuri and Kamilaroi man, a distinguished journalist and writer. He's worked for ABC, SBS, The Seven Network, Sky News Australia, and of course, as an international correspondent for CNN from Asia and the Middle East. He now holds a chair at Charles Sturt University and is international affairs analyst for the ABC. He's the author of Talking to My Country, Australia Day on Identity, and his newest book is With the Falling of the Dusk, a chronicle of the world in crisis. Peter Harcher, a leading Australian journalist and writer, he's the political editor and international editor of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, a visiting fellow at the Lowy Institute for International Policy, and he spent time as a foreign correspondent in Tokyo and Washington. His books and essays include Bubble Man, To the Bitter End, The Adolescent Country and The Sweet Spot. His new book, Red Zone, China's Challenge and Australia's Future, is described by Francis Fukuyama as clear-eyed and utterly frightening. Emma Johnston is a Professor of Marine Ecology and the Dean of Science at UNSW. She's a national advocate for improved environmental management and conservation who studies human impacts on the ocean from climate change, pollution and invasive species. She's a board member of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority and one of the chief authors of the Australian Government's State of the Environment Report 2021. Of course, you can also see her on television as a presenter on Coast Australia. I'm going to turn to Emma first, really to start this conversation by talking about the environment. One of the things that is really important is to think about our environment, not just, of course, as the place where we live and the biosphere that supports us, but also something that's a really key part of Australian identity. But I want to start by asking you, the State of the Environment Report is a major report that the federal government commissions scientists to conduct every five years. The 2020 run report has just been completed, but is not yet public. What are the key things that we need to understand about what has happened to the Australian environment in the last five years? Thanks, Anne. Well, a lot has changed over the last five years. We, um, in particular, I can talk about the structure of the report, which indicates two of those major changes. This is the first time in the history of the state of environment reporting that we have an entire chapter devoted to extreme events. And that really speaks to the impact that extreme events have had in Australia uh, on ecological systems and on people throughout the last five years. I was involved in the 2016 report and, uh, you know, in that report we were talking a lot about climate change impacts and we were starting to have clear evidence of those impacts. But five years later down the track, 
we are dominated by those. And so whilst we're still looking at um, impacts of land clearing and invasive species as being two of the key drivers of extinctions, for example, and we have a terrible extinction rate in Australia, we also see layering on top of that now climate change pressures. And it's very clear that our capacity to manage those pressures is insufficient. So to give you an example, you know, there are 1,900 species in Australia that are listed as threatened or a higher category of threat, like endangered or critically endangered. And that's about 8% more than we had five years ago. So you know, the situation is deteriorating. Um, we're also starting to see abrupt ecological changes on entire ecosystems that we haven't seen before. For example, the loss of entire kelp forests or major mass bleaching events, very extremely large synchronous bushfires. So a lot has changed in that space. Uh, another thing that has changed in terms of the way that we report on the environment is this very first state of environment report where we've had Indigenous co-authors on almost all the chapters. And I'm really thrilled to say that I enjoyed being the co-chief author with Terry Janke. Uh, and that contribution, that acknowledgement and the long overdue voice, the Indigenous voice on the environment and connections to the environment has radically improved the way I think we, have, we are reporting on the environment. So we have a scientific Western evidence-based approach um, that can be very much focused on the biophysical aspects. Bringing in Indigenous authors made us recognise and realise and talk about our connections to country, the clear fact that our well-being is being impacted by those impacts on the environment. And I think Western systems can sometimes divorce, you know, people from environment and we might talk abstractly about that. And that is just not something that in many of our Indigenous communities across Australia, and they are diverse, you know, 300 different language groups, et cetera, but something that draws into its connection to country and treating country as kin. And the Indigenous voice throughout the State of Environment Report is clear and it's there and it, and it should be celebrated. You're an environmental scientist. Your role in this has been to document the situation and to inform government and to inform us as citizens about it. But when you think about what that story, the story that you're telling, extreme climate events, increasing rates of extinction and these abrupt uh, climate events, what, what does that do to how you think about the environment? You know, obviously it's something that is part of your professional life and so on, but it's also something that we all have a, a sense of every day. How do you deal with that, really, what is a tide of very concerning news? Yeah, I mean, it just gives me more energy, to tell you the truth, because we, we don't have a choice. We can't not have biodiversity. You know, it's not something nice to have. It's actually a complete necessity. Humans do not live in an isolated way. We are dependent on for food, for medicines, for ecosystem services like clean air and clean water, et cetera. We're dependent on functioning, diverse ecosystems. So from my perspective, when I see all of the, the damage that has been done historically and the disconnection between people and the environment, it makes me just more energetic about wanting to reconnect people, wanting to be able to explain clearly the urgency of the need for change, in particular the urgency for the need of the reductions in carbon emissions because no matter where you look, the, you know, the looking in the next 10 years, World Economic Forum, for example, the biggest risks to the globe over the next 10 years, the top three, failure to act on climate, extreme events which are associated with climate and biodiversity loss with ecosystem collapse which is not just climate, it's also all of the other unsustainable um, mechanisms that we've had for producing food and the urbanisation, urban sprawl, for example. So for me, it's motivating. At times, you can get into a dark space. But I also think that my connection to environments, and I'm particularly connected to marine environments, you know, a daily walk uh, along the sea, allows me to refresh and recharge. And I think that's something that people are increasingly understanding. The Australian identity, we can't talk about one single Australian identity, but if we were to romantically, you know, and wistfully talk about it, about the icons, the icons are, you know, people lying on the beach, they are 
the farmer in the outback, you know, there's someone walking in the bush. We feel we are connected to country. However, we're actually a highly urbanised community, living primarily in big cities, in big concrete jungles. And for me, I think creating much more of an opportunity for people to connect back into biodiversity, having biodiversity strategies for our cities, you know, and, and our new developments and making sure that we've got more green spaces, more blue spaces and more opportunities for urban ecology to thrive will actually improve our mental health, it will improve our well-being, but also our understanding of our dependence on ecosystems. Um, Peter and Stan, can I get your comment on this? We see ourselves as a people of the outdoors, as Emma mentioned, but also very much the view of Australia from other countries is filtered through this set of, you know, the Great Barrier Reef, this set of icons. When you hear this kind of news about damage to the environment, the difficult situation that we're in, what do you think that means for you personally, but also for the way Australia is seen by others? Peter? Well, we may well see ourselves as a land of, uh, as a people of the outdoors and the bush and all of that. Uh, but in reality, we fail to appreciate what we have. We fail to appreciate our own uniqueness. We fail to appreciate our own unique wildlife. And I think we spend more time and attention staring at American pop culture, foreign pop culture generally, rather than looking at our own environmental reality. In, in one sense, um, our sort of complacency, pardon the siren in the background, I don't know if you can hear that, but uh, they've got a sense of urgency even if the rest of the country doesn't. In one sense, our complacency and our delinquency in confronting the climate and environmental reality is perfectly understandable because we had a 10-year dalliance, a 10-year diversion with the climate denialism led by Prime Minister in charge was Tony Abbott, of course. Remember, until Tony Abbott, we had a bipartisan commitment in Australia uh, on climate change led by John Howard and Kevin Rudd. Tony Abbott broke that, and he broke that not under solely under his own influence. It was actually Barnaby Joyce who coached him, and you'll remember Tony Abbott said that Barnaby Joyce was Australia's greatest retail politician and followed him down the path of populism, climate denialism. And that really has cost Australia about a decade in getting any real progress on confronting the reality of climate change. And it explains why Australia is so far behind on many measures. Electric vehicles is one that we were talking about in our family yesterday. It's just we're just ludicrously far behind compared to other developed countries. But that's been the high cost of political populism, uh, of political parlour games, rather than seeing politics as problem solving. Uh, and that's been a really expensive uh, diversion for our country. Stan, can I ask for your, for your input? I, I think a lot of what we're discussing to be today can be framed, you know, within an Australian perspective. And, you know, Anne's talked about the damage to our environment. Peter's talked about the political situation here and the loss of a decade politically and getting traction on this. A lot of the discussion we're having today, we can pull the lens out and look at where this situates us and what the global picture looks like. Because one of the things we know about the environment is that it's going to require a global effort. We have a situation where we know that we're in a, a state of geopolitical flux, where there is a return of great power rivalry, uh, where there is still the divides between the global north and south. China and the United States are absolutely, as the big, two biggest emitters, absolutely critical to any lasting and meaningful solution to this. Uh, and you look at the parlor state of their relationship. I think it reflects something else that was also mentioned in the World Economic Forum report that Emma talked about. One of the things that it listed among the, the many existential threats that we face right now is a collapse of multilateralism. We have seen this. What are we up to now? COP26. We'll then go to COP27, still looking for solutions. We have Russia and China not, not turning up to COP26. We have the watering down of the statement about coal and trending it out rather than removing it altogether. So there's different time frames. There are arguments, rightly or wrongly, about this, but certainly countries like China. Russia, uh, uh, India is another one who point the finger at the West and say you've had 
200 years of industrialization to build your economies and we haven't we're doing it in 40 50 years and so we want longer timelines so you get 2060 targets 2070 targets so climate like so many other things whether it be covid response um, vaccinations whether it be weapons control rising inequality all of these things are caught in the crosshairs of an erosion of a global order, uh, an erosion of multilateralism, a return of a much more virulent nationalism, populism that Peter talked about here in Australia, which has been a winning ticket in many parts of the world politically as well. So we see the return of the political strongman who plays populism, plays on the worst aspects of anxiety and fear in their own countries, has a beggar thy neighbour approach when it comes to things such as trade. So all of these things come together and climate lands right at the heart of this, an existential threat to us all that we cannot resolve without a global approach at a time when a global order itself is crumbling under attack, liberal democracy receiving authoritarianism rising and, and a real shift in the global balance of power. So I think so much of what we're talking about fits within that sort of rubric, but absolutely when it comes to climate. In Australia, we require the rest of the world to be able to come together to work on this. And we need to be good global citizens as well, as Peter and Emma have pointed out. So before we move on to that enormous discussion about, about the state of the world, which I feel, uh, you know, is going to be a very rich one, I want us to just focus on one more thing, specifically in the Australian context. And I want to ask you, Stan, to talk to us about something that's absolutely at the core of the Australian story at this point, and that's the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Over the decades, we've all seen attempts by governments to improve the lives of Indigenous Australians, whether it's called reconciliation or John Howard's practical reconciliation or closing the gap or the whole you know, issue about saying sorry, all of these things. The Uluru Statement has so much promise because it goes to the heart of something that all of those other approaches have ignored, which is a question of sovereignty. It's been an incredibly considered process and consultative and inclusive, and with such beautiful words, invites all Australians to walk with First Nations people in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. The most extraordinarily generous statement, but we're coming towards five years since that statement. And I would really like your perspective, Stan, on what is proving so difficult about making this vision real. Well, it's, it's the tension that sits at the heart of the Australian settlement, and that is the, the question of sovereignty, sovereignty not ceded, sovereignty not fully recognised, and where that sits within the Australian political sovereignty itself. That's the heart of the question here. We know that we've made progress when it comes to the sort of softer end of reconciliation. We have reconciliation targets uh, we have closing the gap targets, albeit many of them still not being met. We have welcomes to country, acknowledgements of country. We liken watching our Indigenous sporting stars. Ash Barty playing the Australian Open right now. Scott Boland in the cricket recently. We're about to have the Indigenous All-Stars playing in the NRL. And all of that stuff around acknowledging Indigenous culture, acknowledging Indigenous people's connection to land, acknowledging whose land it is. But the heart hard work of trying to marry the contested sovereignty has always proved a bridge too far for the Australian polity. And I think that's what lies at the heart of this. Remember when the Uluru Statement was first delivered and rejected by the Turnbull government uh, under the belief then that Barnaby Joyce, to pick up on what, uh, on what Peter had said about climate, but Barnaby Joyce burst out of the gate saying that this was a, a third chamber of parliament. He's since walked that back. But Malcolm Turnbull picking up on the same thing, Scott Morrison repeating the same line and dumping it on, on the premise that Indigenous people should not have rights that other Australians don't have, that that somehow sits outside of the Australian compact, that Australian liberal democracy is premised on an inclusion of all, not the recognition of one over all. And we're still at that point. We're still working through what is it an acceptable political outcome that tries to put some meat on the bone around this idea of contested sovereignty and what that sovereignty looks like. Now, in the Uluru Statement, the sovereignty is represented by a voice in the constitution 
And that's been critical to act in the Constitution, not something merely legislated, I shouldn't say merely because legislation has its own power, but not something legislated which later could be altered, but something voted on by the Australian people into the Australian Constitution that is part of the heads of powers of the country, how we do business in the country. We're still working through that. And there was latest iteration now, which is talking about going back to more negotiation around what that voice would constitute. Would it be legislated first? At what point would we go to a referendum? What would be the recognition inside the constitution itself? So all of those things are still up for grabs. But at every point, and this has been a, a two-century-long struggle now, to recognise Indigenous sovereignty, we have seen that fall at the last hurdle. Even the Mabo decision, the High Court said, we cannot consider the idea of sovereignty. Native title recognition of native title can sit within Australian property law, but it can't sit outside of that. And so that that's that's the hurdle at which it, it falls. And you know, it's it's a high bar to pass. Australians don't pass referenda. Eight out of fifty-four have been successful. It, it, it is a high bar to change the country, to change the nature of the democratic compact, which works so well, demonstrably for so many. Is, is a difficult order. And that's the challenge for Indigenous people, is to make that case that brings the Australian people with us on this journey of being able to resolve the tension at the heart of the Australian settlement. And just a final word on it as well. There is no homogenous view on this amongst Indigenous people either. That's incredibly contested. And, and some who, who reject the idea of the Uluru Statement and want absolute sovereign treaty. Um, so there's a tension at the heart there as well. But that's the big question. Is the recognition of the rights of First Nations people here, sovereign rights, can they be accommodated within the liberal democratic compact of Australia? And we've, we've been struggling with that for two centuries. Stan's talked there about contested sovereignty, which obviously is a, a core uh, truth and a core problem we're grappling with here. But can I suggest it's also part of a larger problem that Australia has of uh, a kind of underdeveloped national identity. You referred at the beginning, Anne, to an essay I wrote years ago about Australian foreign policy for the Lowy Institute that was called the Adolescent Country. Well, in terms of a different definition, but our, our national identity, I think we're a bit of a juvenile or a bit of an adolescent country. And to me, the compelling vision for what really is unique about Australia and that we'll see Australia realise its potential was laid out in 2014 by Noel Pearson from the Cape York Foundation. And I'm going to read this. It's only a couple of sentences. I'm going to read it to you because, first, to do it justice, but second, because I find it the compelling vision for Australia finding its identity, its place in the world, and being able to reconcile its different parts. Noel Pearson talks of Australia having being a, an incomplete commonwealth, but a commonwealth in three parts, and those three parts need to be brought together. And I'll, I'll just quote Noel. There is an ancient heritage written on the continent and the original culture painted on its land and seascapes. There is its British inheritance, the structures of government and society transported from the United Kingdom, fixing its foundations in the ancient soil. Then there is its multicultural achievement, a triumph of immigration that brought together the gifts of people and cultures from all over the globe, forming one indissoluble commonwealth. And Noel Pearson wrote in 2014, we stand on the cusp of bringing these three parts of our national story together. Unfortunately, um, that's seven years ago and we're still standing on the, on the cusp. We haven't made a lot of progress. But to me, that's the compelling vision of, of where, where Australia can truly unite and realise our own potential. Emma, go ahead. One thing I can say... Um clearly is that there is an increasing opportunity and official transition of land into Indigenous protected areas, which is expanding rapidly. So across Australia now, uh, something like more than 50% of Australian continent now covered by Indigenous protected areas. And many cases, they're co-management, for example, or they might be just primary management by traditional owners. And traditional use of marine reserves agreements in the Great Barrier Reef, for example, continue to expand. And Australia benefits enormously by understanding 
and working with Indigenous people who have much, much longer traditions and understandings of ecosystems. And so we are in the environment space increasingly recognising, respecting and working with Indigenous people to to manage land and to connect back to country. And this includes in Indigenous uh, cultural burning practices as well, where possible. Sometimes we've actually transitioned the country so much that the traditional practices are no longer applicable. But certainly there's a positive story there of increasing engagement and empowerment of Indigenous people, which is benefiting the whole country. So if, in fact, we we don't want to sink into a pit of despair about this, we can take Stan's longer historical perspective and say just five years out of 200, we need more time to do this, but also that in some ways, if not sovereignty, but a resumption of that relationship with the land is happening not by stealth but by practice. And you and you see this, Anne, you, you see it all around the country. I mean, my father's been um, heavily involved in language recovery and um, our language, or actually language in particular, and, and to see white kids, you know, all Australian kids speaking that in our schools and being taught that in primary schools on, on Wiradjuri country. And my dad always says, you know, in terms of, of, of sovereignty and how that is, is constructed, he says language doesn't tell you who you are but where you are. It goes to Peter's point about a, a shared identity in the land and that speaking the language of the land makes you a part of that. That always says it's it's for everybody in the country, not just for us. He's, he's holding that language and that culture for all. And that's, that's the sharing part of this that we're getting right. We're not getting the political part right. I want us to move and to look at some of those really big issues in relation to the outside world. Peter, in Red Zone, you've given us an incredibly compelling, you know, clear-eyed and terrifying, (laughs) I would have to agree uh, with Professor Fukuyama there, an account of the recent rise of China in particular and Australia's immediate response to it, what has happened. Can you paint us a picture of where we're up to? I mean, obviously, the, the rise of China is an enormous global story, but it's Tremendous significance for Australia. We're in the neighbourhood. We're a a small to medium country with an incredibly significant economic relationship with China. What has been happening and where are we up to? Well, yes, Australia has been described as the canary in the coal mine for engagement and confrontation with China. It's been described as also as the tip of the spear uh, in trying to resist. And countries around the world have looked at the Australian experience and learn from it. In fact, the British Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, in Australia just yesterday uh, said exactly this in a press conference at uh, Admiralty House with her Australian counterpart. She said, the rest of the world has looked at the Australian experience and it has woken the world up uh, to China's intent, its plans, and its new modus operandi. It wasn't China, as you know very well, and it wasn't China's rise that troubled Australia. Australia was only too happy getting very rich from it and happy to embrace China absolutely uh, fully. It was Australia's biggest source, not only of trade, but foreign investment, of foreign students, and you name it. Most common foreign language spoken in the country is Mandarin Chinese, followed by Cantonese, and then Arabic. So what happened was that first under Malcolm Turnbull, but also since, Australia um, realised that there was something more than a benign engagement and mutual advantage being pursued here. And it was uh, really the wake-up, I think the single most important wake-up call Australia got was the Sam Dastyari case, where we saw a uh, Chinese agent of influence, a billionaire who's since been declared persona non grata by the Australian government and refused re-entry, for the price of a few thousand dollars, had managed to buy... Uh, an Australian senator's policy views and had Sam Dastyari uh, abandoning his own political party's views to repeat the Chinese Communist Party's views about the South China Sea and how it really does belong to China. And it's not actually an international waterway after all. And Sam Dastyari, of course, has since repented of all this. But the astonishing thing about all of that, Anne, was that it was all legal. Nothing Sam Dastyari did was illegal. And in fact, we only know about it because he disclosed the money he was taking from uh, Huang Jamo on the parliamentary members' interests uh, register. So that woke Australia up that there was a creeping takeover of the political system underway, which then had, as we know, the Turnbull government banned foreign donations, which incredibly was still legal in Australia until just three or four years ago, banned Huawei, which was planning to build Australia's 5G network, 
and uh, created a new system of register of foreign interests in Australia. But since then, the entire country has awoken and followed by uh, other countries worldwide. And we now see a very sharpening confrontation where we see China uh, pursuing, not only pursuing its own version of, of authoritarianism at home, but seeking to export that to make its own dealings and its own sphere of influence as comfortable for it, for the Chinese Communist Party, as possible. And the primary piece of evidence we have for that, for anybody who says, well, that's nonsense, the Chinese themselves say that's nonsense. But if you look at the log of 14 demands that the Chinese embassy in Canberra presented to an Australian journalist for publication in November the year before last, that log of 14 demands sets out uh, what has been described as the uh, ingredients for an illiberal order, an illiberal international order set according to Chinese interests. The first demand was that Australia not exercise its own discretion on foreign investment decisions, but agree with whatever China wants to do in terms of foreign investment in Australia. And then it moved quickly through. Australia should allow Huawei in. Australia should do a number of things, including uh, muzzling the press, silencing members of parliament who say anything that might be critical of China, and so on and so on. And we now see uh, this as what the, the, the Brits, again, just yesterday in their meetings with Australian counterparts, described as the confrontation of uh, malign authoritarianism being exported through the South China Sea, uh, in the case of China and on its borders, we, we see increasing confrontation with India, with Japan, uh, with uh, its neighbours in the South China Sea. And at the same time, of course, Vladimir Putin, uh, and we see the, the stirring a recrudescence of uh, expansionist di uh, disruption from, from Russia and what it's doing now with its destabilisation on the border of Ukraine. Uh, and it's no coincidence that those two great powers both pursuing authoritarian visions, are increasingly working together. So, Stan, I want to invite your comment on what Peter has been talking about. In your book, From the Falling of the Dusk, you're very much telling the story of China so that we can understand a lot more about it with a, with a really interesting mixture of history, but also stories um, and experiences from your time um, living in China for almost a decade in the lead up to 2012. What have we failed to understand about China and why, why does this matter? Look, I mean, China's a, a paradox, isn't it? And all the things that Peter has said are absolutely true um, and documented and verified. China is, is a country that challenges a global order and yet profits from a global order. You know, we, we've seen our relationship go into the, um, into the deep freeze over the past year and yet conversely the price of our exports increased by about 24% over the past year. Year, despite the bans placed on barley and beef and wine and crayfish and, and other things, predominantly because of increasing um, in iron ore prices. But, you know, it's the biggest trading partner of more countries on earth than any other country. It's the biggest engine of economic growth. It is a part of a global order. It's a member of multilateral institutions like the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization. It's a permanent five member of the UN Security Council. It's a contributor to global peacekeeping. Um, you know, it's about to host the Olympic Games. So in many ways, it's enmeshed in a global order, yet at the same time, it challenges the precepts of that order. And I, I think that's the really interesting thing here in trying to understand what, what drives China and drives Xi Jinping. The one thing that I took away from my years of living there and, and I delved into, into in my book as well is the sense of identity and the sense of national humiliation. When Xi Jinping talks about the, the 100 years of humiliation, dating that from the, the first opium war through to the 1949 communist revolution, the Communist Party, he believes, you know, gave China back its pride, ended the 100 years of humiliation, continually tells the Chinese people, look what these foreigners did to us in the past, don't trust them, look what they'll do to us again. It's part of that identity, and it does fuel the way that he sees the world. It's not a benign power in that sense. There is an element of vengeance in that return, and it is part of that national identity. And he shares that with Vladimir Putin, who, you know, part of what we're seeing in Ukraine right now is his idea of what is Russian identity and avenging a humiliation. 
the fall of the Soviet Empire that he calls the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. But, but the, the big point here too, though, I think, and I think we need to understand this, is that the rise of illiberalism that Peter has rightly identified, led by these rising authoritarian states, comes at a time when we are in allowing that to fester within our democracies themselves. The rise of illiberalism within our democracy. Uh, we've seen that writ large in the United States. We see it in countries like Hungary, in countries like Poland, in Brazil, in the Philippines. You know, Narendra Modi is meant to be our partner in peace and a member of the, the Quad pushing back against, against China's rise. And he's been accused of trashing his own democracy with his Hindu nationalism. Democracy is in retreat. Freedom House now counts 15 straight years of retreating democracy. That great book, How Democracies Die, by Stephen Levitsky, the Harvard political scientist, said that democracies die from without, but they die from within as well. And they die at the ballot box. And it is political leaders that we elect who help to bring about the death of that democracy. So, you know, the strength of the liberal, the liberal order to withstand the rise of China depends on the strength of our own liberal democracy, the faith in it, the strength of our institutions, the ability to work together. We are still, as a, as a bloc, China, uh, the US and EU, dwarf China's economy as a bloc, dwarf China's military as a bloc. But the erosion of democracy within, the rise of illiberalism, the cancers of inequality and identity politics are weakening us at a time when we need to be stronger. Yeah, look, I'm really interested in how this has played out in, in science and technology. As dean of science, obviously, it's one of you know, my special areas. And China has been investing substantially in science and technology research more generally for more than a decade. And I'm, I mean substantially in a huge way, building their capacity in that space. And there's many, many productive collaborative relationships between Australian scientists and Chinese scientists that continue today in areas where we can be sure there are you know, so, no sovereign security issues. But what the the change in this conversation and the trade issues has given rise to in Australia, I think, for the first time in a long time, is an idea and a need to build sovereign capacity in all fields. COVID has contributed to this as well. But that understanding that our own investments in science and technology and manufacturing in particular are actually helping us be the independent nation that we'd like to be in this circumstance we haven't heard that for, for many, many decades in Australia. And it has some, some positive connotations because we have the brains, we have really highly trained researchers in science, technology, material science. You know, we're talking cutting-edge global researchers in quantum, you know, all sorts of spaces, and yet we fail to translate that into uh, supply chains that can produce the products we need as a sovereign nation. And other countries are speaking about this as well. So from that conversation regardless of how the trade issues explode, which they may well explode, is a, is a constructive conversation for us to have, to say, as an island nation, you know, as a wealthy nation, where are we putting our money? Are we putting it into the most important currency of, of the moment, which is science and technology? The US are scared that they will wake up and China will be ahead in quantum communications, for example. You know, we need to be at the cutting edge of these areas and on top of the, of the technology, and we can only do that if government and industry invest more seriously and match the investments that we see in the US and in China. That's a very interesting point. I think that really resonates with everybody at this time in the wake of two years of, of pandemic where these issues have really been raised. RNA vaccine manufacturing, absolutely. Yep, we did not have mRNA capacity. We still don't. Um, and we could have because we've got the technology and we've got the chemists and we've got the molecular biologists. So it's about getting much more on the front foot and thinking strategically about risk in the context of disruptions to supply chain. Peter, I want to bring you into this conversation also because you make some really interesting points in Red Zone about some of those issues that Stan raised about democracy and in particular for Australia in relation to, to, to the challenge of China. You know, at some point you say we need to earn our democracy or lose it. 
but also that Australia needs to concentrate on strengthening itself, making itself armour-plated against foreign subversion and domination so that it can engage confidently with China and the world because it cannot count on anyone else. And another incredible uh, thing that you say, I think, that Australia has been faced with the moment it has been avoiding for two and a quarter centuries, dreading, in fact, standing alone, forced to feel its own pulse, its breath, to collect its senses and test its resolve against a great power. To really maintain the status quo of its sovereign independence, Australia needed to change. Now, all of those relate to this question about how do we strengthen Australian democracy, but also that point that you make that, you know, potentially about standing alone and how challenging that may be in all kinds of different ways. Mm. Yes, well, precisely. Uh, thank you, Anne. And we just had a, a conversation a minute ago about finding out who we are and bringing the parts of our, our national identity, culture and history together. Well, that's a, that's a good way of strengthening ourselves and figuring out who we are. But the point about standing alone, the inevitable uh, and ineluctable fact of Australian history is that first we considered ourselves an outpost of Britain uh, and essentially for the last 70 years, we've considered ourselves an outpost of the US in terms of we have contracted out our, a lot of our foreign policy and defence policy has been contracted out to Washington. We've just relied implicitly and totally on US leadership, but also we've fooled ourselves that the alliance with the US guaranteed us uh, permanent sovereign protection against interference or intrusion or loss of sovereignty or liberty. Well, of course, that has always been a fantasy. And anybody who's read that it's only 400 words long, the ANZUS Treaty, knows that there is no guarantee of security there. But what we also have seen, of course, is that what we had long thought of as perhaps the leading and perhaps strongest of the democratic nations in the world, the United States, has now been teetering on the brink uh, of collapse into anocracy or autocracy or some other democracy. Or another word I learned during the Trump presidency, Anne, was kakistocracy. I'd never come across this ancient uh, Greek term, kakistocracy, meaning government by the worst among us. <laughs> but the prospect, the prospect of the US no longer um, perhaps being a, a democracy, but also and equally, equally fraught for Australia, is the US no longer being in any way an interested or reliable ally. And we saw Trump pulling out of international treaties, as well as insulting bilateral allies and allies of great and long standing. So without Britain any longer, I know that Brits are trying to make a bit of a redux, and that's very nice, still a, still a minor, minor power these days on the side of the world, um, with new questions about the durability of American democracy confronted by China, we do have to ask, are we going to have to stand alone and defend our own liberty and sovereignty. And it is a terrifying question because Australia has never looked that concept straight in the eye and dealt with it. And just finally, I would say, what else Australia needs to do to strengthen its own democracy apart from figure out who we are? We need institutional evolution. Uh, we need, and this is something that nine, nearly 90% of Australians agree with, we need a national anti-corruption body. All the states and territories have one. The federal government, federal level, still doesn't. This is a glaring hole, uh, not only in the way our Commonwealth runs, but in public confidence in the political system, public trust in how our political system behaves. And we need that as well as other, and I've gone to some of them in the book, but that's central to us uh, evolving, improving and strengthening our political governance and civic infrastructure. And as uh, people, including Francis Fukuyama, to whom you alluded earlier, have said, uh, democracies evolve or they die. It's time for us to evolve. Can I just add there too that what Peter's outlined for Australia is a question that all countries around the world now are, are asking themselves. And the answers are many and varied. And we often don't like the answers to this. I mean, the answers in Hungary and Poland are to put barbed wire up around your border uh, and keep out refugees and the like. The answer in, in India is a Hindu nationalism. The answer in Brazil is what Bolsonaro presents to, to them in terms of their own democracy. Um, you know, we, we're seeing a lot more of this now as we're seeing a fracturing of a, of a global order that had held the great peace, the great peace from the end of World War II up until now in terms of a global conflict. 
And Peter's right, that's fracturing now in the face of the disintegration of America from within and the erosion of American power, power from without. And I don't say that with any great glee because Pax Americana, it can be argued, has been broadly, not uniformly, but broadly a good for the world, certainly a good for Australia. And China's rise was predicated on the great peace and economic growth that the United States itself oversaw. But we're seeing all of that challenge right now, and the answers are going to be so much more difficult in a world of a return to great power rivalry, a return to a much more virulent nationalism, populism that's taken hold in so many democracies. The challenges that we see to a liberal, global, democratic compact predicated on the rights of individuals, on pluralism, on freedom of speech, on secularism, as our own countries become more diverse, those challenges become more fraught and the questions become ever harder. And there is a viable authoritarian alternative right now in China that says we have a better model. And we have to have something to answer back to that, both individually in each of our country's cases, but collectively we want to preserve what we know as a global liberal order. We've got some questions from audience members. Maybe to Emma, is it even possible to separate politics from climate action? It seems to be ever more connected. Look, I think the, the bushfires in Australia were a turning point for uh, us because they, you know, 85% of Australians were affected at some point by the smoke just alone. So they were widespread in their human touch. You know, 3,000 homes lost, 34 lives lost, et cetera, but more than 400 associated lives lost due to smoke inhalation, et cetera. So they brought climate extreme events to the forefront of people's minds and helped people realise that actually you can't hide from climate change or climate extreme events. And so I feel like there's a general acceptance now from everybody regardless of where they're working and what industry they're in, that for the future of their children, they need to see rapid carbon emissions reductions. And I'm seeing that play out in all communities, including coal mining communities and in their representatives. So I think we're at a turning point and I think that that's going to take the wind out of the sails of some of the, you know, nastier bipartisanship that's been going on because there's no winners now to being a climate denier and there's no winners to not, not getting rapid emissions reductions. And as Peter and others have said, you know, we are 1.2% of global carbon emissions. That puts us in the top 15 in the world and, the, you know, one of the top per capita emissions producers. So we have a real responsibility as a wealthy country to say, okay, time to pull our own weight, time to rapidly, you know, set intermediate targets and rapidly reduce emissions while we've got the technology that we can use, you know, to, to expand the, the solar technology that's come out of Australia and the University of New South Wales in particular, actually, you know, is so cheap. And the electric cars that were mentioned earlier, we, we don't want to use up our runway and it's only like a nine-year runway now till we hit the 1.5 degree global temperature increase. We don't want to hit that without having any room to spare. So the faster we can move down now in emissions reduction the more time we have to develop all the new technologies we'll need to get to net zero by 2050. And, of course, uh, if we add to those figures, Emma, the uh, uh, share of carbon emissions that Australia exports to other countries, we are an even more significant global player. Finally, I'd, just a, a minute or so uh, to, for a final comment from Stan and from Peter. And a question from Kate P. How do they, a question about how the speakers think ordinary Australians should respond to our current challenges. So this is a sadly, a sadly very limited time frame to, to, th to think about what we should do, but I do feel we've certainly laid the ground for a, a bunch of very interesting future conversations. But so Stan and then Peter, any suggestions for how ordinary Australians should respond to current challenges? You know, one of the things that I'm always amazed by, wherever I am in the world, wherever I've walked from in the world, is the extraordinary strength, resilience, and industriousness of ordinary people. And Australia, you know, we talk a lot about the, the issues in Australia today and where we may fall short. But Australia is still a remarkable experiment. Remarkable. You know, I can walk down the beach and I live near Emma and we pass each other sometimes in our morning walk. But, you know, I can walk down there and I can see a country where people of all different backgrounds can come together and we don't have a lot of the, the deep-seated tribal ugliness 
of so many other countries. We don't have the political polarisation and extremities that you see tearing apart a place like the United States. The extraordinary experiment of Australia of ordinary people from different backgrounds and faiths and races and whatever coming together is truly remarkable. The missing piece is the settlement, the lasting settlement that Peter talked about in, in binding that national identity to a sense of our whole history. But here's something to be very mindful of. Inequality is a cancer that is eating democracies around the world. And we need to be absolutely on guard against that. So I'm going to quickly close by quoting something from a University of New South Wales report. And it showed that the average wealth of the top 20% in Australia is 90 times that of the lowest 20%. That is an unsustainable situation that will lead to the extremities, the tribal warfare, the ugliness, the populism that tears apart so many other democracies. We are remarkable in so many ways. We want to pay attention to creeping inequality. Peter, just to conclude about any, any advice for ordinary Australians and their response to current challenges. Both in big history, where we now confront uh, aggressive authoritarianism, but also in small history, we now are about to confront a federal election. My only, uh, I guess, my very personal impulse would be for Australians to refuse to be afraid uh, to be positive, to value what we have, to pay attention, not to be, I mean, our, our, nat our national natural enemy is complacency, but to refuse to be afraid of any of that and entering an election campaign, which is going to be full, I fearlessly predict, full of scare campaigns. Don't be reckless, don't be imprudent, but refuse to be afraid. Thank you so much for that. Excellent advice. Thank you to all of our speakers, to Emma Johnston, to Stan Grant, to Peter Harcher for a really rich discussion, which I feel we have much more to talk about. So we'll, we'll be, come back to do that at some point in the future. Thanks for listening. For more information, visit sydneyfestival.org.au and centreforideas.com. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.